Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Welcome to the 100th episode of The Thriller Zone, starring Andrew Child. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple, and we are celebrating our 100th episode. Cue the balloons and the confetti and the... Okay, I didn't uh, have the budget for any of those uh, added elements, but Andrew Child is our special guest for the 100th episode. Oh, baby, you're in for a treat. You're going to get inside scoop on how to become one of the best writers in the world from one of the best thriller writers in the world because you are on what? Your front row seat to the best thriller writers in the world. I'm excited. We talk about everything in the show. We talk about his appearance on Hotel California. We talk about great advice. We get to play a little version of uh, If This Scene Could Talk, which I interpret one of the scenes from No Plan B. We talk about, you know, his his own standalone books uh, prior to the Jack Reacher series. Just so much good stuff. So I'm going to shut up and uh, let him start doing the talking, and he he's good at it. Please welcome Andrew Child. Welcome to the Thriller Zone, Andrew Child. Well, thank you, David. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. It would be a pleasure to be here on any show, but the fact that this is your 100th show, I am just so honored and so delighted to be here. What an incredible landmark. I cannot wait to see what you're doing on your 500th, on your 1000th, but it is wonderful to be here for the 100th, so thank you. Well, God, I, I'm I'm honored to have you. I mean, uh, when we were sitting around the table going, okay, who who could be... Who could show up for number 100? And we had about three people in our mind. And you, after I, after we chatted on the Hotel California episode, I'm like, oh my God, honey, Tammy, my wife, Tammy, what about Andrew Child? Oh my God, could that even happen? I'm like, I don't know. All I got to do is ask. And boom, there it happened. So <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I was delighted you did. I mean, after we had so much fun doing the Hotel Calif- California show, um, you know, you were kind enough to say that I could come back and uh, I was looking forward to it anyway. So to find out it was going to be the 100th was was just a wonderful, wonderful bonus. So thank you. And I can't wait to uh, to see what you come up with for the show. Well, we're going to we're going to start off first of all. This is my arc um which is very close to your final copy, I believe, uh, No Plan B. Um great, I'm going to just say one word, great read as always, classic Jack Reacher. We'll get back to that, but first I'm going to dive into you because I want to know a couple of things. What speaking of Hotel California, Don Bruns, a uh, short story compilation which you were a part of, um which fascinating book beautiful book by blackstone publishing oh my god their quality isn't it off the charts it is and also the imagination you know the fact that they they knew that it was a book with a kind of music theme so they just went all in on finding ways that they could reflect that in the final 
in the final product, you know, little Easter eggs, you peel back the, the dust jacket and inside it looks like it's an LP, you know, just, it, it was just, you know, stuff that none of us were expecting them to do. They just did an amazing job. So, uh, yeah. you know, that was one of the many things that made working with Don and all those other fantastic authors on that anthology such a pleasure. We're going to do a little revisit of that a little bit later in the show uh, because I've got a video of that moment uh, when we're going to be talking about advice that's coming up. But uh, I want to talk about what you've been up to since that episode. Are you, well, we got, you know, we got, of course, No Plan B uh, was well into the making. So what have you been up to? What are you working on now? Fill us in. Well, a lot of my time really went on finishing off No Plan B. Um, you know, it was it's the third one that I worked on with my brother, and it was just, you know, it's it sounds cheesy, but it's you know, it's a dream come true to get to do what you love with your brother. You know, it's just wonderful. We've been having a fantastic time, and we I think we really got into our groove with with No Plan B. I think it came out. I've, I've had I've heard some people saying that uh, really it's just like you know the uh, the classic reaches, and that's the biggest biggest praise that, that anybody could give me really. And uh, we had a wonderful time writing it. We just hope that people will have a wonderful time reading it as well. Well, that is mission accomplished. I mean, it is, it, you know, a couple of interesting things, and I, I really want to spend time to dive in it later, but I do want to say this, is seeing the new Jack Reacher, um, uh, not the Tom Cruise, but the uh, Alan Richson, he is just, he's spot on of what we all probably secretly dreamed the Jack Reacher would look like, and so it's, it's so cool to see him uh, come back around. It is. I mean, and that has been wonderful because, you know, obviously there was a certain reaction to, to the, the way that Tom Cruise appeared on the screen. And, um, you know, we really hope that there would be a much more positive and a much more um, accepting response this time around. And there certainly has been. It's just been overwhelmingly positive. And that's great. And it's also been great for Lee and me with, with the writing because, you know, we've had a vision in our heads of Jack Reacher for 25 years, more. Um, so if there was somebody who was gratingly different, I think it would be difficult then when you're sitting down to write because you'd have these competing images in your head. But because he really is just like what we always imagined, it means um, everything is proceeding in the same direction. Everything is, is comfortable. Everything just works together. So uh, it's been wonderful. Yeah. Now, if he could just get into shape, because he's, you know, he's a little on the fat side and just kind of lazy. <laughs> exactly. He really needs. He really needs to get in the gym more, doesn't he? But uh, yeah. apart from that, apart from that, he's doing a great job. <laughs> oh my God! All right. Now, so I learned. I did not know this. All kinds of little tidbits I learned as I was researching you, Andrew. One is the your wife Tasha Alexander is also a New York Times bestselling author. And she's got, uh, her website's beautiful, all these historical fiction. So I'm sitting there scrolling through and I'm like, oh my God, look at all these books. And I'm looking at your books and Lee, your and Lee books. And I'm, I'm like, and I thought to myself, what, how in the wide world of novels do two supremely talented globe-trotting writers live under the same roof? Well, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, we wonder sometimes, but actually it is a real, real godsend because, you know, you know, as you know yourself, writing is a kind of strange thing to do. You know, you're sitting around and in your head, you're in this foreign 
alien made up world where sometimes the characters that live there, the situations that occur there, they don't always go the way you want them to go. And that can be very frustrating. It can be incredibly annoying. On the other hand, sometimes it's just absolutely delightful because everything falls into place perfectly. But all of this stuff is invisible. You know, it's all imaginary. And so it can be very, very difficult if you are living with people who spend all their time in the real world. Um, it can be very frustrating. You know, they might come home from a really demanding day job and find that you're sprawled out on the couch with a huge heap of pizza boxes next to you complaining because the, the imaginary people in your head aren't doing what you want them to do you know that can be that but you know for us we understand that it makes sense and um there are times, especially at the beginning of books, where you can, you're getting this real sense of excitement because you can feel that the story is there, but you can't quite describe it yet. So you, yeah. you sound like a lunatic. You say, you know, oh, it's fantastic. I've got this great idea because this guy is in this place and he's doing this thing to this other guy. He's doing this other. And it sounds ridiculous. But, you know, we get it. We understand. Okay, so that's where they are in the process. This is going to be great because, you know, it's kind of ignition time. You know, everything is about to, to start rocketing. And uh, that's a wonderful feeling. And it's not it's great to understand it when the other person is having it. And, you know, you can you can feel good for them because, you know, you know what they're going through. Same if they're feeling if they're feeling frustrated or, or, you know, everybody has a different thing. You know, there's a certain point in every book where 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 Tasha starts to think oh my goodness where is this going what's happening and then she's like oh it's just the you know page 200 problem no don't worry it'll it'll go away next week you know and yeah. uh, you know so yeah it's very nice to have someone who understands what you do and the other thing about it is that when you get close to the end of a book you've been working on it for so long it's really difficult you're so close it's really difficult to understand to, to really judge whether it's any good you know you can't you know so you need somebody who you can really trust to read it for you and say you know yep you're okay you can send it into the editor or absolutely not run for the hills you know go go and go apply for a job at Safeway you know so yeah. um somebody because because it's the worst thing in the world is somebody telling you that you've your work is okay when it isn't. You, if, it, if, if there's a problem, you need to know about it so you can fix it. So having somebody that you know is telling you the truth and not just blowing sunshine is invaluable. Yeah, and, 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 uh, and to that exact same po point, my wife is, so I'm, we're right brain, right? That's the highly creative, right? I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah right, yeah. as in mm -hmm. right. She's left mm -hmm. brain. So she, mm -hmm. she gets off on spreadsheets and analysis and data, which makes my head swim worse than vertigo. And, um, it's like you mentioned balancing a checkbook and I can literally just break out into hives. But <clears throat> the good thing about that is when I'm done with the first draft, I can feel completely comfortable because she's a, an avid reader. I hand it to her and I'm like, okay, go away, read it. Don't have to talk to me in the meantime, but when you come back, you got to rip it to shreds for me. Tell me what doesn't work. And she's very much like that. And it's great when somebody, like I used to do some acting and I dated actresses, not necessarily the greatest combination for a hundred reasons that we take a whole nother show for, but you need somebody to give you that feedback that's okay. Dave, <clears throat> I know you love this part, but it's, you, you've already said it get rid of that. Uh, this right here, you know, and I love that part. The other thing is 
Uh, and we did this recently. We went out to uh, Colorado to see the grandkids. And we'll be driving, as you know. That's dozens and dozens of hours. And I'll just get it. You know, I'm driving. And this is driving, in case you're wondering. We, we did this. <laughs> I went to acting school for that. And uh, and I'll just disappear for sometimes hour at a time. And she'll come and she goes, oh, working on a character, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. How'd you know? No, you get that look in your eye and you just... You just kind of disappear. So part of the process, right? It is. It is. Interesting you were saying about your acting background and how that influences how you write because it's the same with Tasha. She was she was a great actress uh, back in the day and I think that that really kind of shows in her books because one of the things she does, you mentioned, you know, she's got this long back catalogue now. Her 16th Lady Emily book actually came out yesterday. So, um, you know, she's been doing it for a long time. And one of the reasons I think it stays fresh is that she has a kind of, obviously she has her main character, Lady Emily, but she has a whole supporting cast of other characters. And she just kind of instinctively knows when to bring those characters back onto the stage. And I think that's something that comes from from that theatre experience. Yeah, I'm looking at, there's a string of them. I mean, she, she's no slouch. <laughs> oh, I know, it puts me to shame. No, listen, we, we get where we're going when we decide to get there and however hard we push. But here's the other thing I wanted to know, and I love this because I, you know, uh, people laugh when I say I stalk people on Instagram. It's really just sharing, Andrew. It's not stalking. Um, <laughs> but... I follow you guys and you're out there living on a wildlife preserve in Wyoming. Just tell me outside of the photographs what that must be like. I mean, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. And people back home in England will say to me, you know, did you ever imagine yourself living in a place like that? And I always have to say, well, no, because I didn't know that there were places like this. You know, the, the state of Wyoming is larger than the entire United Kingdom. And the population of the whole state is smaller than the town that Lee and I went to college in. So just the amount of space, you know, the amount of room that you have, you just, I spent my whole kind of formative years always feeling kind of squashed in, you know, wherever you went, the buildings were small, they were full, the streets were crammed, Every, if you drove anywhere, you were, you know, it's always like high intensity city center driving everywhere, whereas here, you just feel like you can relax, you feel the weight coming off your shoulders, you feel like you can breathe. The first time we came out here, we came on a road trip a few years ago, and um, we took turns driving, and at one point I happened to be driving, and Tasha kind of looked at me thinking, what's wrong with him? Is he having a stroke or something? Because I was looking ahead of me. We were on this road. It was dead straight for, for 200 miles or something. I was looking ahead. I couldn't see a single vehicle. I was looking behind. I couldn't see a single vehicle. I had never experienced that in my entire life. And so one of the, the first thing that attracted me was just that sense of space and calmness and just room to think and, and breathe. Um, and that space has another effect because it just puts everything into perspective you can drive along you can pull over you can get out of you switch off the engine get out of your car you will hear nothing man-made you will see nothing man-made and it just you're this tiny tiny little blip on this immense horizon and 
it puts everything in, into perspective. You just think, you know, our own, everybody has their own troubles and everybody has a biggest problem at any given time. And you go outside and you just feel it melt away because you're so small and insignificant in the great scheme. And so just getting to live here where there's so much room and so much space and so many, you know, literally it is a wildlife preserve that we live on. And, um, we literally see more moose than we see people. You know, we can sit around and look out the window and a moose will walk by. If you want to see a person, you have to get in your car and drive and find one. It's, it's really strange. That's brilliant. Oh, and there's this one view where you've, uh, there's uh, two chairs sitting on the deck with this vista to just beat the band. I mean, and I think... Uh, when it comes to it's there's another feature we do on the show from time to time called show is your writing space and i'm thinking well that would be the writing space i would choose right there with that vista absolutely although actually in, in the room where i do work i've kind of had to position my computer to kind of block the window because otherwise you just you know three or four hours will go by and you've done nothing but but stare at the view so yeah, yeah. it's the opposite because before we lived in in, in Wyoming, we lived in the central Chicago, and I used to swear that there must be a spy camera in, my, in the little room where I work because every single time I went to sit down, someone would start jackhammering the street outside, or they would start refurbishing the fire escape, or they would start tuck pointing the building, or the neighbors would decide that they needed to tear down their apartment and rebuild. You know, there was always some horrendous racket or sirens going by, or motorcycles, something was going on 24 hours a day. Um, and it, you know, it was distracting. Yeah. Whereas here, hey, curi- you know, curiosity, what part of uh, Chicago did you live in? We lived in Lincoln Park. Oh, so okay. There was just the part we lived on, uh, on a place called Lakeview Avenue where it, it, it did what it said on the tin. <laughs> it was an avenue with a view of the lake. And um, it was, it was a lovely place to live, but very, very noisy, very hectic. All right, so you were on Lakeview. Do you know where Diversity is, the next street Absolutely. north? Yeah, yeah. Right. I lived right on the corner of Diversity and Sheridan. Uh-huh. I know, yeah. I know that well, yeah. Great view of the lake, great view of the city. Uh, it was in uh, Al Capone's summer home, old building, renovated, beautiful. Yeah, such a fun city. Yeah, there were some lovely buildings in that area. There was one near us that had been owned by the Wrigley family, and um, it was constantly for sale because um, mainly because of the property taxes in Chicago. They were so high, you know. Um, and, but if you went in, you know, we once went pretending to, that we that we could afford it, <laughs> and uh, just the quality of the fit, you know, the woodwork was unbelievable. You know, I doubt, I doubt very much if today, if you said, I want the same thing, you probably couldn't get it because that kind of wood, the kind of skill and experience that go into working with it probably don't even exist anymore. The whole of the top floor of the building was a ballroom with a sprung floor. It was just outrageous, this place. Man, and talking about quality craftsmanship advice, we're going to talk about that. I want to take a short break to uh, let our sponsors do part of the job. But when we return, we're going to discuss advice that you shared on a different episode, uh, as we mentioned at the top of the show, Hotel California. And it's one that has not only become a game changer for me, literally, but folks, you're going to love the simplicity of it. And the minute you really absorb it, you're going to go, oh, I want that. So 
I'm with Andrew Child. We're on The Thriller Zone. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a moment. Stay with us. Your host, David Temple here. Hey, before we get back to the show, I thought I would throw in this one quick note. I have had authors approach me who want to actually advertise on the show. And I'm like, that's cool. I love that idea. I mean, think about it. We feature the best thriller writers in the world. You're one of the new up-and-coming thriller writers in the world to be. And you have a book coming out. Our rates are super reasonable. (laughs) We're easy to work with, as you know. And we all want to work together to make success for all of us. Just reach out to us here at The Thriller Zone at thethrillerzone at gmail.com. Let's talk rates. Let's talk details. Let's do something together in the new year. I think you'll like it. Now, back to the show. And now, back to the show. And we're back. I'm with Andrew Child, David Temple, your host. It is The Thriller Zone, and we are celebrating our 100th episode. Andrew, how crazy is that, right? It's fantastic. And I mean, it's a wonderful uh, milestone to reach, but it's so well deserved because this show is fantastic. I love watching it and it's an even bigger pleasure to be part of it. So thank you. Thank you. And as we mentioned before the break, we're going to be talking about some advice because I want you to folks watch this piece of video and listen to what Andrew says, and then we're going to break it down. My advice is actually to ignore all advice. You know, if I think back to when I was starting out, I think a lot of people have this vision that there's a certain way that you do it. You know, most people have had jobs where you've had training and you've had people, you know, show you what to do or tell you what to do or give you a manual or something. There is no manual. If you set out thinking that there's this certain thing you've got to do, you've got to use a particular kind of word processing program or you've got to start at a particular time of day or write a particular number of words or whatever, that is a desire. What you have to do, what you've got to remember is that you are the best person in the world at telling your story. In fact, you're the only person who can tell your story. So do not listen to anyone else. I've had several friends who have been trying to get books published and they've been nervous and they've gone to other people that they know and asked for their opinions and they've got half a dozen different opinions which they've then weaved into the book. And then instead of having a distinctive story with their own voice, which captivates you and makes you want to keep going, you just end up with this mishmash of different competing, conflicting things. And it winds up being nothing. So ignore everybody else. Write your own story. You're the only person that can do that. The way that you learn to be a writer is that you read. And if you're too busy to read, then you're too busy to write. So you've got to just tell your story the way that you want to tell it. Because it is your story. Man. Uh, Andrew, I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel like I'm kicking a dead horse dead dog, whatever the phrase is. But uh, the reason I do this is because it's so profound. And I think you were so spot on. And and did you notice all of your uh, comrades there doing this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You you tell them, Andrew, because you were you were speaking a truth that they were all going, yeah, I've been there. I've done that. I understand that. But I want to break that down a little bit without sounding redundant, even though we will, because it has just impacted me so powerfully. So Let's expand that just a little bit, can we? Absolutely. I mean, part of it comes from when I first started out um, and you're trying to write your book, 
<clears throat> and you sit down in front of the keyboard. There's all kinds of things running through your head. You know, can I do it? Will it be any good? Will will people enjoy reading it? All of these. Will anybody want to publish it? All of these questions run through your head, and. It, I found I was losing my way because I was this noise was drowning drowning out any thought process that I had, and it struck me, you know, to go back. I'd forgotten saying it actually, but that that thing that we said in the previous podcast about how often if you have a, a, a different kind of a job, there'll be training, there'll be there'll be map product, you know, there'll be instruction books and whatever. Something that you can take from that is that every everything you're involved in, every process, you're not the only person there. There's all kinds of other people involved. And so what you've got to do is just identify which part of the process is yours and focus 100% on it. And if you're writing a book, the only thing that you're in charge of is starting on page one and go keeping going until you get to page whatever it might be. All of the other stuff, decisions about is it any good, decisions about what needs to be changed, what genre are they going to call it, all of this stuff, not your problem. Your problem is start on page one and do not stop until you get to the end. That's all you have to do. All of that other stuff comes later, and most of it involves other people anyway. So just focus on the bit that's yours, which is the writing part. And really, there's so much else that you can't control in the industry. Um, that's the bit you can, and that's the bit you should enjoy. So, you know, sit down every day and just have a good time doing it. And as I said before, remember that you are the best person in the world at telling your story. Nobody else's opinion matters because they're not you. They can't tell your story. And the scary part of it is, of course, there's no guarantee that you're going to succeed, but you can absolutely guarantee that you won't succeed if you don't start, if you don't try, and if you don't give it the best possible shot. And the best possible shot comes from just telling your own story in your own voice in your own way. Ignore all the stuff. There's so many rules out there about can you have backstory in the first chapter? Can you do this? Can you do that? Ignore all of that. I, I would literally tell myself that it's, it's, it's just like, imagine that it, we're just sitting in a bar, David, you and me, the drinks arrive, and I start telling you a story. That's what it is. It's just that you're doing it on your own, with a computer instead of in a bar with a friend. That's what you've got to think of it as. It's as simple as that. People have been doing it for as long as there have been people. You know, that's what sets the human race apart is the fact that we tell stories. Uh, we have always told stories. And even some of the characters have always been around, you know, characters like Jack Reacher. He's an eternal archetypal character. People need it. People need stories and stories come from the people. You can only tell your own story so uh, that's all you've got to do and when you when you do that it actually becomes easier it becomes more fun as well because that weight it's a bit like living in Wyoming as opposed to living in a city all of that weight lifts off your shoulders all of that noise disappears from your head and you can focus on the only thing that matters which is telling your story in your words in your way yeah and I think so much of such great advice. Thank you, Andrew. Um, <clears throat> so profound, and I and I love it, and I'm I'm so honored to be a part of this. There is something uh, my wife doesn't understand it because she doesn't uh, have that mechanism that we have that super creative thing. She's creative in other ways, and she goes, you know, I I don't really when you get frustrated, when she'll see me get frustrated, she doesn't quite understand. I said, well, most of the frustration 
is I, almost every single time one of two things. One, to your point, oh, but I read where so and so said that you you should you know it should be Act One and Act Two and it should break this way, and I'm like. Maybe it's because I'm a natural rule breaker and I just don't really like following rules. Maybe because it's because I was brought up in a preacher's house, so I'm a PK and I just like rules. Yeah, take your rules. It's part of that. Part of the other thing is is trying to quiet the monkey mind that goes, oh, well, that's not really very good. Or you really want to do that or whatever. If if I could ever get those two voices to shut the hell up. I would see, I'd be so better off, you know? But that's where, that's the part about remembering, you know, wh- what your job is and remembering which part of the process is yours because, you know, the, the second monkey, you know, telling you about, you know, or, or whispering, you know, oh, that's not very good. No one's going to like that. Not your problem. Not your job to decide. Someone else decides that. All you do is get the words on the page and make sure that you're happy with them. And then, if you are, if you're lucky, other people will be too. But um, there's no there's no way of guaranteeing that. But to give yourself the best shot, it has to be your words telling your story. And the same with with the rules. I mean, you can waste your time reading to see what all of these rules are. But really, the best thing, you know, the way that I think it works is that the more that you just read, the more books you read in every different genre, every different style, they kind of all you know, wind up in a in a mishmash at the back of your head and they kind of percolate away and they kind of refine themselves into an almost instinctive understanding of, of, of what makes a good book and what makes a good story. And I think that we, you know, this is something that Lee touched on a lot with Jack Reacher himself. You know, Reacher is somebody who is in tune with his instincts. You know, all of that are baked into the old lizard parts of the human brain through millennia of experience. You know, we tend to not listen to those anymore, you know, in, in, in life because we've been taught to analyze, we've been taught to go to we've been taught to go to the instruction manual. But there is a lot of stuff in in us that is really, really valuable. And I think a lot of it applies to writing. You know, there are times when you sit down in front of the screen in the morning. And you don't feel like doing it, right? And you have to trust yourself to to be honest about, well, is that just because, you know, I was up a bit late last night, maybe had a couple of too many glasses of wine, and now, you know, I just can't be bothered. If it is, then too bad. You've just got to get on with it because it is your job. This is how you put food on the table. All of that stuff doesn't matter. You do the job. But, and it sounds contradictory, there are other times when actually you have to listen to that little little voice inside because sometimes what it's doing is it's stopping you from making horrible mistakes. Um, <laughs> can't remember if I, if I mentioned this example last time we spoke, but it's really stuck with me because, um, you know, we mentioned theater earlier. You know, I, I was never any good at acting. I was always appallingly bad at it, but I'd love everything else about theater. So when it comes to writing dialogue, that's my favorite part because, you know, plays are kind of all dialogue really aren't they and so I remember my first book I'd finished my day's work and I was looking ahead to the next day and I was thinking oh tomorrow's going to be great because I'm writing this scene that's going to be all dialogue it's going to be so much fun I was so excited about it but when I sat down the following day I couldn't write a word I couldn't write a single word and it was driving me crazy I was ready to 
beat my head on the desk. So I got up and I went to make a cup of coffee, you know. And um, while I was making the coffee, it dawned on me that this dialogue in the scene was actually taking place on the phone, right? On the cell phone. And it remind, I remembered two days before I'd written a scene where the hero had lost his cell phone. So how could he possibly be having a conversation <laughs> on his cell phone? He didn't have one. So I had to write an extra little scene that I hadn't anticipated where he went and got one from somewhere. Um, and the, being the kind of character he was, he didn't pop down to the local store, if you know what I mean. Um, right, right. You know, so he, he acquired a cell phone. And then, of course, he could have the conversation because he had a phone again. And once the phone was in his hand, the, the scene flowed and it was, it was a lot of fun to write. And it just, I was amazed because evidently there's some kind of safety net process going on in your brain. But it doesn't quite articulate it in a way that you can latch onto immediately. But it's there and it's saying to you, no, stop, you're making a mistake. Yeah. wait you know and so that's one of those instinctive things that you have to learn to differentiate between you know when you can't get the words down is that because you know you just need to try harder because that you know there's nothing really to stop you or is it that subconscious safety net kicking in and saying no there's something not right here you need to fix the problem before you plow on and uh you know that that's that's one of the tricks but when you you've you've got to be open to both possibilities and you've got to trust yourself which when you decide which one it is let's back up a little bit you uh <clears throat> I, I somehow thought you were always a writer, and then I come to find out that you actually had, like many of us, had a corporate gig. And what was the impetus uh, at, at, at what point in your life that made you run from the J-O-B and take up a life of writing? And I wonder also, as a second part of that, which I tend to do a lot of, how much of an influence did your brother have uh, in making that decision, if he did, in making that decision? Well, you know, the, the, the corporate job was never something that I specifically wanted. It wasn't something that I set out to to achieve. What, what happened was, um, uh, if you've got time for all of this long story, Absolutely. but hey, yeah. you, you opened the door. <laughs> so, um, you know, when, when I, like you, you know, you talked about not, you know, not liking to follow rules, not liking to take advice. Um, when I was at high school, my favorite thing in the world was English literature. I just loved it. And a lot of that was down to the teachers that we had. We had fabulous teachers. They would introduce us to these wonderful books and poems and plays, and then they would allow us to discuss them. You could talk about anything. If All you had to be able to do was justify your opinion. If you could justify it, everything was fine, nothing was off limits. And so I wanted to do English literature at university because I thought it would be the same, only kind of bigger and better and even more fun. Um, and all my teachers said, no, Andrew, you don't want to do that because, you know, you might talk a lot, but you're not actually very good at English literature. So really you should do something else like economics or whatever. And I, I wouldn't list, listen to them. I insisted on, on doing English lit. And, you know, I got to university and I discovered that it was nothing like what it had been at school. It was horrible. You had all of these these tutors who were these internationally renowned professors. And if you suggested something different, if you had an interpretation of a book that was different from theirs, they didn't think, oh, great, we can have a lively debate. They took it as a sign of insubordination or something, you know. And I actually got kicked out of one class 
Um, it was in back in 1986. <laughs> I remember the class. I remember <laughs> the guy. <laughs> um, he, he was mad with me because I didn't agree with with some point, and I wouldn't back down. And he said that he announced that he was the world's leading expert in this subject, and I could either apologize or get out. So of course I got out, and uh, <laughs> and never went back. Um, but you know what it meant was that I was I was struggling with the English literature, and I wanted to do something different. But back in the, those days, it's a little better now, but in those days, university in England was a bit different to it, the way it is in the States, in that you had to, you couldn't just go to university, spend a couple of years figuring out what you wanted to do, and then declare your major. You had to apply for the major that you wanted to do, and then you were kind of stuck with it. Um, the only way to really change dramatically was to was to drop out and then come back the next year. And to my dad, that would have, that sounded like failure, you know, and failure was not acceptable. Um, So the most I could do was switch to doing a dual English literature and drama degree. So then at least I had something other than the literature and the theory and all of that. And, you know, it was brilliant because you would be writing stuff and you'd be building the set and making the costumes and doing the lighting and doing the sound. I loved it. So at the end of the time, you know how it is, you're doing something for a course, there's always an assessment or an exam or a test, and you wait until you've passed that, then you have to move on. And there were six of us and we were saying, well, no, wait, you know, we we liked all of those things. We weren't ready to move on just because the curriculum said that it was time. So we figured before we get trapped into the whole nine to five thing, why don't we set up our own company and do our own stuff. So we did. And um, we had a couple of years of just absolute fun. It was unbelievably good. We we were very organized. We had a business plan. We got money from the government. We did all sorts of stuff. And we did everything we originally set out to do. It took longer than we thought, of course, but we, we did it all. Uh, we did a national tour. We went to the Edinburgh, Edinburgh Festival. We, you know, we did a lot of good stuff. Um, but at the end of it, you know, we'd achieved everything we originally set out to do. So we sat down to say, well, what's next? And, um, Various people wanted to go off and do different things. And me, I was just broke. I was sick of being broke. You know, I was I was sick of walking past the store and looking at the stuff in the window and thinking, oh, God, I wish I could afford some of those things. And I couldn't. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I'll get a normal job for a couple of years just to, you know, fix the hole in my bank account. And then I'll sure. do something fun again. And so this is pre-internet, of course. So um, you couldn't just Google for for vacancies. What you had to do in England was get the Sunday Times. That was where all of the graduate jobs were advertised. So um, I got the copy of the Sunday Times, and I was extremely scientific. What I did was I cut out all of the adverts, and I arranged them in order of the highest starting salary. <laughs> and um, I applied for that one. And managed to blag my way into to getting the job and that was in with British telecommunications so you know kind of like AT&T is in the states and um that you know that was it I kind of got caught I got dragged into the corporate machine and um wound up there for for well there and I had spells at a couple of different companies for like 15 years and um you know, you can wind up with a mortgage and all of this stuff, you know, it's hard to break free. And um, 
after a while, you know, for, for a spell, any new job is interesting because there's stuff to learn. You know, there are people, the people are generally the, the plus side of jobs, aren't they? And, you know, the work is generally the downside, I've always found. So, um, you know, it's fun while you're learning it and it's nice to make friends. But then after a while, it gets bad. And I, I, I just did not flourish in the corporate environment i wasn't i wasn't kind of cut out to be a, a worker bee or whatever so I, I didn't do very well and um after a while i just started thinking about i wanted to leave well what it what it was was i i'd started because i couldn't go to the theater much anymore because i was always on the road so that meant i was reading all the time instead and i realized without meaning to i was reading kind of spy fiction crime fiction adventure action all that stuff and one day i was reading this book started out one of those books that are just the best books you know where you get completely sucked in everything is brilliant you cannot wait to find out what happens you'll stay up all night you won't get off the bus so great but then i got to the end of the book and it was awful it was terrible and all i could think about was what was he what was the author thinking you know he he set up this possibility why didn't he exploit it he had this character who showed these why didn't they do that why didn't he thought you know i had all of these questions and what they did was they kind of formed an itch that had to be scratched i had to find out if i could do it and so to the second part of your question you know by this point yeah my brother was obviously really well established and, and doing really really well and what that meant was i could find out from him how the game works you know because I, I i like things to be very simple and very visual and so from talking to him what i understood if i quit my job and became tried to become a writer i was essentially running a a, her, a rate, one of those races with hurdles you know the first hurdle is you've got to write your book right. <laughs> second hurdle is you've got to find an agent and the third hurdle is they've got to get you a deal and so i thought okay i understand what i'm what i'm dealing with here that was the advantage right. of having a relative in the industry when sure. when it came that you know i cleared a, a couple of the hurdles that's when it became a little less helpful because then of course you what you've got to avoid and this is why at the time i was using a different name i went to a different agent i went with a different publisher everything to try to distance myself because uh, i wanted I didn't want it to be that I was sort of, you know, helped out in any way by sure. him. I pretended that he was nothing to do with me <laughs> and um, actually tried to write in a way that sounded completely different, which was difficult because we actually normally naturally write in a very similar way and sound very similar. So I had to, you know, force this alternative kind of persona on myself for a while. Did you, that is such a fascinating thing that you would try to separate, but I get it. I mean, I've got a brother too, and, and I probably would have done the same thing if, if he had this meteoric rise to fame, I'd go, well, I want to make it on my own until one day you realize, until one day you realize it's such a tough business. It's so competitive. And, and you guys started out when you just pulled out a piece of paper and started writing and you, the competition wasn't as fierce it is, as it is now. And the self-publishing world, for instance, wasn't around, I don't think then. And, you know, where anybody can just pick up and write and put it on Amazon. But what I love about that is that, you know, are you cheating the system when you when you get some inside scoop? No, because we we all just want to expedite the cycle. Let's just learn what not to do, and once we master what not to do, then we can really focus on what to do. I mean, it 
there's a little bit of that, right? Exactly. Yeah. And just, you know, any, as I said, for me, I just like to understand, you know, if I'm entering the playing field, I want to know, well, you know, what does it look like? What are the rules? What do, you know, what do I need to do and what do I need to not do? So it, it just helps to know the environment you're in. And publishing, as you were sort of suggesting, there is a, is a strange game. You know, it doesn't work the same way as um, a lot of other industries. Um, to the extent I remember Tasha was once explaining it to her father, who was a philosophy professor. So, you know, somebody who was, you know, pretty good at understanding things. And she was explaining how publishing works and the different steps involved. And he kept looking at her and saying, no, no, I, th- I think you I think you must be misunderstanding this. But, you know, she wasn't. It was just that it was very different. So having an, in, an insight into what is involved was a really valuable thing. So Lee has had, uh, he's written a book, I think every single year since 97. Uh, first of all, you've been a part of what, three, four of those? Three, three, three that are completed and one that we're working on right now. Gotcha. So there may be some people in my audience who don't know um, that you have had several books under your real name, Andrew Grant. And I want to mention those books just for those folks who'd like to go back. And like me, when I discover somebody new, I always want to go back and find out how you got there. So we have Even, Die Twice, More Harm Than Good, Run, False Positive, False Friend, False Witness, Invisible, and Too Close to Home. Did I hit them all? I think so. Okay. So that is no small feat. Do you find yourself, will you continue? uh, I I know you're picking up more speed with your brother and so forth. Will you continue to write your own series and or standalones as well as carrying on uh, the, the reach your legacy in the future? I would certainly, I would certainly like to, because um, you know, my, my whole life, all I've really liked to do is tell stories. And those books that you mentioned, one of those was a standalone run, but the other ones all had a recurring characters in them. And I had lots more ideas. I had lots more things that I wanted to do with those characters, um, particularly the the final couple, which were uh, involving a character who I was just thought of as the janitor. You know, his name was Paul McGrath, and he was ex-military intelligence, and he wound up working King, essentially he sent himself undercover uh, to work at the courthouse in New York City because uh, there was an injustice that he had come across and that was the best way to find out what was happening. So the idea was that having established why he was there, he was just going to continue working there as the janitor because you know a janitor can go anywhere, he can see everything, but typically people don't pay any attention to him. So the idea was that he would see what was really going on. He would see if there was a miscarriage of justice. He would see if, you know, someone who could afford the you know multi-million dollar lawyers somehow managed to steamroller the little guy that can't you know and get away with something they shouldn't have got away with so then he he would step in and he would he would he would put things right and um I had real fun with that. I thought it was a really, it was it was just a very enjoyable kind of format for a book, and I was having great fun with it. So, um, yeah, I would certainly like to write more of those. And I think that for me, anyway, it was it, it had been an idea that had been at the back of my mind for for a long time. I wasn't sure originally if I could make it work. I thought it might be a little too 
almost exaggerated. But then over the time that I was writing, you know, things in society were changing. And I mean, if, if you look at it, you know, these last, you know, last 10 years, you know, the, the inequality in society, the difference between the, the resources that the very rich and, and everybody else have is growing all the time. It's, it's kind of as bad as it was back in the golden era, gilded age, you know, there, there's so many bad parallels right now that I thought the idea that if you had a fictional person who was there stepping in and helping to correct the balance a little bit and, and write the scales, I thought that um, it, it might be it might be time, and uh, you know it seemed like it was. So I would I would very much like to keep going with those at some stage. I've always been such a big fan of what I'm going to call um, a modern day Robin Hood. You know, I always and, and that's what I've always liked about Jack Reacher. Even though there is a military background, and I'm not bashing because I, I got a lot of military thriller writer friends and they do impeccable work. But I like the fact that Jack is a regular guy like one of like kind of kind of like your Paul is that regular guy trying to right some wrongs, moving through life, living by his own set of rules and standards and going, you know what? you're not being good here. I'm going to help you make a better choice. And I just find that refreshing. You made a comment about, oh, maybe I'd be afraid it would be too over the top. But isn't that kind of one of the reasons we escape anyway? I want the over the top. You know, I want those uh, hair raising scenes and like, oh my God, that couldn't possibly happen because in real life, in our normal day to day, it's not happening, right? <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. And that, that, difference between that gulf between what you could get away with in you know, well it's not so much what you could get away with it's what you would like to be able to get away with in your everyday life and what reacher can get away with on the page because there are so many things that stop us in real life you know we would get arrested we would lose our jobs we would wind up getting divorced you know there were all kind we would go bankrupt there are all kinds of things that would stop us you know we might get hurt we you know we might not have the necessary skills to do the things but reacher doesn't have a job. He can't get fired. He's good at avoiding getting arrested. He does have the necessary, you know, he can do all of those things that we kind of wish that we could. And yeah. the more frustrating and the more unjust real life becomes, I think the more we need these kind of fictional escapist heroes who can, um, at least in our heads, put things right and do the right thing. Yeah. I'm going to, and I think try one to... thing, one thing, one thing that's sorry. One thing that actually makes me feel a little more kind of enthused. Well, a little kind of what's the right word to use <clears throat> that gives me some satisfaction is or some hope is that the fact that Reacher always does the right thing <clears throat> and people still want to read about that. It shows that deep down, most people still want to do the right thing, despite how <clears throat> sort of fractured society is becoming and how argumentative a lot of situations are becoming. The fact that people, the hero that people turn to is still the one who does the right thing, I think is, yeah. is a source of hope and encouragement. I love that. 
Um, and this is a good place to take a break. Uh, Andrew and I are going to grab a little glass of water. But when we come back, for those folks who join us on the Thriller Zone from time to time, you know, I do this little thing called If This Scene Could Talk. So I'm going to take a little excerpt of No Plan B and do that right after this short break. So please stay with us right here on the Thriller Zone. The best thrillers, the Thriller Zone. And now back to the show. And welcome back to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. I'm here with the incomparably talented Andrew Child as we celebrate our 100th episode. It's exciting. Can you tell I'm a geek there? (laughs) So good to have you, Andrew. Well, well, thank you. I'm excited too because, um, you know, starting a show like this is difficult. Keeping it running is even more difficult. Getting to 100 episodes is magnificent. So, uh, Huge congratulations for reaching the milestone and huge thanks for allowing me to be part of it because it has just been so much fun. Ah, thank you so much. Yeah, it, uh, uh, I'm looking forward to the next 100. Now, the book is No Plan B. Uh, it's a hell of a read, as you would expect from Mr. Child here and his brother, Mr. Child, two childs. Um, it's, it's just fascinating. I, we are giving away two copies of this book and all you really have to do. It's so friggin' easy. Send us an email to the thriller zone at gmail.com. That's it. And just tell us where, where you listen, what, what city, what country, you know, we're, we're big, Andrew and I are big travelers. We just, we love to talk to people from all parts of the world. And, and as I look at the statistics on my show i'm i'm heard all around the world and that's so fascinating and i love it reminds me of my days on the radio but just tell us where you live and why you want the book that's it uh you know i want to because uh, i want to read it you know do give me a little bit more than that but uh, that's all you got to do we'll, we'll draw a name now as you are familiar with the show we do this thing called if the scene could talk here is a little episode of if this scene could talk Jack Reacher had lost count of the number of people who had pointed guns at him over the years. Often the person with their finger on the trigger was angry. Sometimes they were scared, or determined, or elated, or relieved. Occasionally they were calm and professional. But Hannah Hampton had an expression on her face that Reacher had never seen in that kind of situation before. She looked embarrassed. She said, I'm sorry. 99% of me thinks I'm wrong, that I'm crazy, but I have to know for sure. Reacher said, Know what? Why you showed up at Sam's door. I told you why. You told me a story. How do I know it's true? You talked to Detective Harewood. He confirmed it. Hannah shook her head. He confirmed what you were doing, looking at Angela's murder, not why. I'm helping him out. Why? Angela was murdered. So was Sam. Someone should do something about that. Yes, the detective should. It's his job. And he has the whole police department to back him up. Why does he need your help? He's facing some institutional obstacles. Such as? That doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is whether you want Sam's killer to go free. If you don't, you need to put the gun down. What if it's not that simple? It is that simple. Hannah paused. But she didn't lower the gun. Here's my problem. There's a little voice at the back of my head, and it won't shut up. It keeps saying, you were the only one who knew Angela was murdered. You were the only one who knew Sam didn't have a heart attack. You were the only one who suggested Angela sent Sam some secret evidence. 
you were the only one who went looking for it. That's why Harewood needs my help. Unless there's another explanation. There isn't. If you'd found the evidence at Sam's apartment or in his mailbox, what would you have done? Given it to Harewood. But would you, though? That's the real question. You think I was trying to get it for myself? That's a possibility. You have to admit it. You have no legal standing here, no official role. So you also think I killed Angela and Sam? (laughs) That's the bottom line, right? Reacher kept his eyes on Hannah's trigger finger. Her knuckle gleamed white, but it didn't flex. Not yet, Hannah said. You know an awful lot about how Angela and Sam died and why. I don't know nearly enough about that, but what I have learned, I've told Harewood. Because I'm helping him. Call him. Ask if that's true. If you're helping, why are you leaving town? Did you find the evidence? Hannah looked at Reacher. It dawned on her that he had no bag, no case, no bulging pockets. Did you destroy it? No. So why are you leaving? Because I didn't find it. I need to look somewhere else. Where? Winson, Mississippi. Where Angela lived? Where she worked. Where she found the problem that led to all of this. Hannah was silent for a moment. You're going to find who killed Sam? I'm going to try. You promise? You have my word. Does that mean anything? Reacher nodded. Hannah said, If you find the guy who killed Sam, what will you do? Give him the chance to surrender. And if he doesn't take it? That'll be his problem. Hannah lowered the gun. Okay. I believe you, I think. And I do want Sam's killer caught. So, how can I help? You could give me a ride to Denver. There must be a Greyhound station there. I love it. That's so fun. I've never, no one has ever done that before. And it's just so, it's just, it's amazing to hear though. You know, I remember sitting down typing those words and to hear them come to life is fantastic. So thank you. Yeah. What I love about this book, and we said this at the top of the show, it's classic Jack Reacher. I mean, and that's, 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 you know, I was saying to my wife the other day, I'm like, you know, she's she asked, well, how much, is it different? Than, no, it's exactly like all the ones before. That's why I like it. And that started this whole conversation of why we get attracted to specific writers and a specific character. I remember early on, way, way back, uh, Sue Grafton's uh, character for the Alphabet series. I just wanted to see what uh, Milhone had to do in every single episode. And with Jack... Yeah, it, it's it's the same premise-ish, but he's in a different town, different people, different scenarios. And anyway, I just I could go on and on about it. But Andrew, you guys hit it out of the park, park here. Well, thank you so much. And you know, you, you touched upon some of the things that you know are the most difficult to deal with when you're talking about a long-running series because you you know I guess the way we always talk about it is you know our father was Irish so he could get away with these kind of things and he had this expression that something needed to be the same only different (laughs) and so you know that's what we try to do with with Reacher because nobody wants to find out that he's suddenly become a kind of tree-hugging vegan or something right um (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with tree-hugging vegans. It's just that if you want 
some if you want if you like the character of Reacher, you don't want to find it suddenly different. You know, you want to find that you want that consistency, you want that kind of familiarity that you look. For. I mean, as a reader, um, you know, every year for twenty four years, I was waiting for that next Reacher because I love Jack. I knew what to expect from him, and it, there's a pleasure in the way the scenes are set up, so that you have a sense of what's coming. You don't know quite how Reacher's going to solve the problem. You don't know quite how he's going to dispatch the bad guys, but you know he's going to one way or the other. And it's really fun to 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 see how it happens and and watch him in in action. And so you want to keep all of the stuff that is good. But you want enough variety in terms of the towns, in terms of the scenarios that he's facing, in terms of the villains that he comes up against. And that itself, the villains, I think, is is one of the biggest problems because um, we have this expression we talk about called um, called villain inflation, <laughs> right? <clears throat> Which is that, say you have a scenario in one book where somebody's going to explode a nuclear bomb in New York City. And he's defeated. Well, what happens in the next book? Is it going to be two nuclear bombs, but in Los Angeles? And then is it going to be four nuclear bombs in Chicago? You know, how do you control it so that it remains plausible and it remains relatable? So one of the things we always try to do is make a a big component of what makes the bad guy bad make it something that is human, make it something that's on a reasonable scale, make it something that you can sort of relate, that you can recognize in people that you deal with. And the thing with Lee and me is that we we respond badly to the same kind of things, the same kind of people get under our skin, the same kind of attitudes make us crazy, you know. So what we'll do is we'll try to build that, you know, greed or arrogance or, you know, some aspect of bullying or something that we just cannot abide. We always build that into the villain. So it's not just having to have more nuclear bombs every time. It's it's having a villain that is so awful and so horrible that the reader is like, yeah, we want to see him, you know, getting the Reacher treatment. Well, and there's plenty of darkness in there too. I mean, without giving anything away, there is an element that once you roll up on it, you realize, oh, this is where the story is just a wee bit different and it's a little bit darker and it is a little bit nerve wracking. But one of the things, and I... I'm uh, guilty of doing this because I'm an analyst, meaning I love to study how things work, which is why I always take things apart and put them back together. But one of the things I loved about this book was, and and when you really start um, analyzing it, and trust me, Andrew, I, I went along for the ride and enjoyed every page of it. But when I broke down some of the things that really I'm attracted to, that's, well, that's how we learn, right? I mean, you and your brother are always saying, matter of fact, I saw him recently say this, uh, we you said it too on the show. If you're not reading, you're not writing. I mean, you got to read to be able to be a good writer. But here's my point, and then I want to circle back to that, is that while you're writing action, which is one of my favorite things you guys do, you've managed to remove all the unnecessary words possible. I mean, especially when you get down into a chase scene, like uh, I was reading early this morning, I get up about five and start reading, there was a chase scene. He did this, boom, do that, boom, 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 boom. And it just makes your eyes fly. And so anyway, I want to stop babbling and just say that's one of my favorite things about your work is the uh, – it's minimalism, but minimalism from the standpoint of it doesn't take a whole lot of words to get – I'm filling in the blank myself, you know what I mean? 
Exactly. And, and I think that is absolutely critical because if you over-describe, then people feel disengaged because there's nothing for them to there's, there's, no, there's no kind of activity for them. They're not actively involved. If, on the other hand, you don't provide enough, then there's nothing for them to, to grasp onto and start to then fill in the rest. So it, getting that balance, <clears throat> making it so that people are engaged enough to fill in those blanks, to decide exactly what the character looks like or how the, what the scene looks like is, is really, really important. And it's, it's, it's how, you know, if you, if you take, if you, if you peek behind the curtain, it's how the thing works. And I always like to think of it as, you know, the, the book itself is a machine and the words are like the, the cogs and the moving parts of that machine. And the idea is what they're supposed to do is grab you at the beginning on page one, somehow grip hold of you, pull you down that conveyor belt and not let you off until you reach the conclusion, you know. And if you, it's, it's, it's subtle and it's things like, you know, you can break it down into the length of the sentences, you can break it down into the length of, you know, you, 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 you increase the pace, you grab and you pull people through that machine using those words as, as the tools. And, um, you know, it, that there's an expression, and I think sometimes Lee fell foul of this because there's an expression that goes, easy, easy reading is difficult writing. And there yes. would be, especially with the early books where people would be like, oh, wow, that Lee Child book was amazing. You know, I picked it up and I, you know, I read it in two days. It was just such a great read. And they don't realize that the amount of skill and craft that goes in and it, it's invisible. If it's done right, you don't see it. You don't see how it works. You just come out of the experience feeling really good because you enjoyed it so much. You never saw how it works and you never saw how the, the mechanism was, was, um, was operating. Where did I hear this? Was it you? Uh, was it your brother? I, I picked up recently this phrase, um, uh, uh, get in late, get out early. Have you heard this? I have, yeah, yeah. And I think it very much relates to, um, it's essentially the structure of the book. It's where do you start and, and where do you finish? Because um, a lot of the time, you know, if you, if, you, if you look at the way that you're thinking about starting a book, um, you really want to be right in there with the punch, you know. You don't necessarily want to have the whole build-up to um, how it's going to come about and what's going to happen. You just want to be straight in at the key, at the key moment. And so, yeah, that was what you, what you said is a, is a really good way of, of describing it. Yeah, it's like don't don't tell me. Uh, oh, they got up in the morning, they went to the restaurant, and they sat down, and the guy had a gun in his pocket, and they talked about this. No, just be there and have the guy reach right. So, mm-hmm. um, there's a. Um, I don't know if I maybe I'm getting on your doctor's couch right here, uh, Andrew. But uh, <laughs> while prepping for the show, I saw on Twitter. Uh, Alan Richson is, you know, touting the return of the series. And then um, that night I dreamt about him and I dreamt that we were in a scene together. And as I was thinking about it this morning, I'm like, were we in a scene together or were we in a dream as in life? And isn't life all of it? Isn't all of this kind of a dream after all, which that's a long conversation. We'll have another day, but I just found that interesting that I would, you know, I'm, I'm preparing for the show. I see him mention this on Twitter. I turn around and dream about him. No, I don't have a man crush on him, uh, although it would be easy to do. And I'm just like, wow, wow. 
what is that all about? Can you, doctor, can you help me with this? Yeah, well, I mean, I, th I think um, I think I know what Lee would say, and I think he would take that as a huge compliment because he always talks about the the process, like the journey that a character goes through from when that character starts starts life. <clears throat> they exist nowhere other than the author's mind and on the page. No one else knows about them. And then gradually, the number of people who are aware grows because maybe you show it to your wife, maybe you get an editor who reads it, an agent who reads it, or maybe some friends. So just a few people have heard of that character. But it's still, you know, primarily the author's character. But then over time, if you're fortunate, that character kind of leaves the author's domain and it becomes, you know, alive in the reader's minds and perhaps in the reader's dreams, you know. So therefore, what you're doing is that that character has, has become fully fledged and has taken on its own life externally from the author who originally thought of it. And that's great because that's when you get, you know, the things online where people will talk about, well, what would this character do? What would he, you know, and then people thinking about it in their own lives. And, you know, they may become across a frustrating situation and they think, well, what would Reacher do about that? You know, and it's almost like you, you gain this extra friend or, or you know this extra person in your life and so really it's just you know it's it's fabulous that he's, he's cropping up you know either consciously or subconsciously in your thoughts i think that's that's wonderful and i'm sure lee would be delighted about that i hope so and, and speaking of lee i saw on twitter this morning, and I think he made this announcement yesterday, he's going to be coming to BBC Maestro to share his writing process for the Reacher series. Is BBC Maestro like our uh, master class? Honestly, I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay, I hadn't heard. Of, I hadn't heard about that. He's um, he's supposed to be coming over here later this afternoon, so he's probably gonna gonna tell me about it then. But um, no, that's that's something I hadn't heard about. Is oh oh I did not know that is the whole the whole all the family in in Wyoming? Um, yeah, yeah. Lee lives um, like three miles down the road. Oh, that's cool. So he's, an, he's easy. in in Wyoming terms that makes him our next but one neighbor. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, as we start to wrap up, I, I you know I always ask this one question before we get to rapid fire questions, which is kind of the finale of the show. And you've been so gracious with your time. I don't want to get. Uh, too too deep into it but i have because it's my closing question and i know we've touched on it a number of times and so if we reiterate it again that's fine with me if we take a slight spin on it that's fine with me but this is what so many of my listeners and viewers wait for and that is this S especially for wannabe up-and-coming writers if you had to boil it down so forgive me for the repetitiveness your best piece of writing advice, somebody's thinking about making it a career, they've been toying with it for some time, maybe they're already in the career and they're thinking about going to get an agent, they've been self-publishing and now they really want to jump off that ledge and go, you know, traditional, et cetera. What would that be? <clears throat> My, I, I have to go back to 
what I said before, and my advice is to ignore all advice. You are the only one that can tell your story. You are the best person in the world at telling your story. So put everything else out of your mind. Easier said than done, I know. But put it all out of your mind. Your only job is to start at page one and not stop until you reach the end. It's not up to you whether it's any good. It's not up to you whether it's called a thriller or a mystery or anything else. All you got to do is tell the story, your story, in your words, in your own way. So uh, let no one stop you. Let no one influence you. Just sit down and tell your story. That's all you have to do. Awesome. It sounds, you know, uh, it sounds so simple, but I think the reason it was so profound to me, Andrew, and the reason that it stuck with me is because I, like so many other people, when I started out, Oh, I wanted to pick up this book for that. I wanted to pick up this book for that style. I wanted to I wanted to drill down on what's your method. If that method works for you, it'll probably work for me. When in reality, that's like saying if you go out to a restaurant and uh, you really got fish on your mind, but you're sitting in a in a burger joint, well then you're in the wrong place. But if if what you really want is, oh man, I just love I love great fish, then you're going to spend your time focusing on that. And that's a silly uh, uh, example, but my point is really about this, is just, you know, it's like a signature, it's like a voice print, it's, you know, who, I think this is the bottom line, what does it matter, what does it really matter if you don't follow some rules? I think of guys like uh, Cormac McCarthy, who kind of, you know, makes up rules as he goes. Nobody's sitting around talking to him. Well, you know, Cormac, uh, punctuation really is a good thing. And it does work from time to time. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, your analogy with the food is a good one, because if you go to, you know, you might have a restaurant that you really like, and you might like it because of the way the food tastes. The food tastes that way because that's the way that chef likes to make it. You know, if you got 10 chefs and you asked each one of them, well, what's your favorite herb or what's your favorite spice or whatever? And you just took all of these unconnected pieces of information and just mixed them all together in a bowl, it would taste disgusting, probably. <laughs> so, um, you know, you, you, you can't have a whole bunch of people all contributing things just simply because that's what they happen to like. You need one person who you know, you've got to have the courage of your convictions. And yes, you might fail. But, you know, I I guess when I set out, I I was sort of thinking, you know, that old expression, you know, better to have loved and lost than never loved at all. You know, I thought, you know, at least then, you know. Um, So, you know, don't try to don't try to hedge your bets, go all in and go all in on yourself. Trust yourself. That's that's all you can do. That's that's the takeaway. I love it. All right. If you listen to the show, you know what this means. Rapid fire questions. Very easy. Only three of them. You and your wife, Tasha, are taking an exotic vacation away from your current exotic home there in the wild. (laughs) And you're going to take, let's just say you're going to take two books to read uh, for pure pleasure. Just because I'm curious what you like to do in your free time, what you like to read, maybe what inspires you. What are those two books and why? Well, the first one, this is actually something we did a few years ago. We took this particular book with us and we both read it. We were both laughing out loud. Part of it might be because it was so much about the industry. Uh, and I, cause I can't understand why it, it, it 
wasn't just a monster international worldwide hit. It was a book called How I Became a Famous Author by a guy called Steve Healy. Um, absolutely tremendous book. Uh, I don't know how long I've got to talk about this, but the idea being this guy, <clears throat> he felt terribly betrayed because his girlfriend at college, it turned out that when they were supposed to be taking their second nap of the day, it turned out that she was sneaking off and studying for the law school exam. So this guy's sort of bumbling through life, not not doing too much. And he finds out, he gets an, a wedding invitation from his ex-girlfriend who's marrying, that she's now super successful. She's marrying this incredibly successful lawyer and everything is going to be wonderful. And this guy can't show up at their wedding, you know, a, a hopeless loser. So he decides that what he'll do to impress everybody is he will become a famous author. So it's this kind of hilariously ridiculous account of how the guy becomes this this it's brilliant it's got like spoof new york time bestseller lists in there it's got every kind of cliche and character that you recognize from the industry in there wonderful <laughs> wonderful read and um i think the other the other book if i was going to take another book i would probably for if it, if it was vacation and i was wanting something that was kind of familiar and reassuring i'd reach to one of the books that i've always loved to read i'd probably take something like one of the len dayton um samson trilogy where you did three trilogies nine books about this character i'd probably just pick one at random and, and just you know dive back into it because that was those books were very formative for me and um i would i just always love reading them isn't it interesting the books that you re read either as a child or in your younger career where you it just had some kind of a special impact and it and imprints something on you that when you become this writer as you have that you can glean from that and go, oh, there's a lesson I learned there and maybe I can weave it into this character. Absolutely. And what I liked about the Samson books was that they they kind of they, they kind of weaved this and, and, and it was when I was sort of thinking about could I become a writer, you know, because, you know, it's, it's a big change. It's, 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 can you do this other completely alien thing? And the, the, in the in the early books in the trilogy, you had Samson and his wife both working for MI6, both spies. So, you know, one would be, it was before the wall fell, one would be off trying to extricate themselves from East Berlin, the other one would be looking after the kids and getting them off to school on time, and then maybe the following week it would be the other way around, and you know, there was problems because no one had remembered to buy the cornflakes, you know, because they were too busy escaping from the Stasi or whatever. And um, you know, this idea that you could be, you know, have one foot in one camp and one foot in a completely different camp. It kind of, you know, gave me the belief to go for it. I mean, in a kind of weird and bizarre way. And, you know, he had so many unbelievably cool kind of field craft details in those books. Yeah. You know, one thing that I remember, it was he was talking about if you were an MI6 agent and you were going to be sent to say Hungary, you know, when it was, when it was still behind the iron curtain, they actually had, for example, a Hungarian dentist working for them who would remove all of your English fillings and all of your English dental work and redo it the way that it was done in Hungary in the same Czechoslovakia, same, all of those countries. So that every, that was the level of detail they went to. Every last thing was, was attended to. 
and um, other details like, you know, if you were a Russian, you know, if you were part of the Russian diplomatic delegation to New York, in other words, a spy, um, you know, a lot of those fellows wanted to really dive into the kind of the luxuries that they, they hadn't had at home. And a lot of them would start wearing a lot of jewelry, you know, neck bracelets, necklaces, those kind of things. But what they would not wear was rings. Because say you got called back to Moscow, say something went wrong and you were instantly recalled to Moscow, you could bin a necklace, you could bin a bracelet. But if you take off a ring, what happens? You're left with a mark on your finger. Um, So they never wore them because you couldn't go back to Moscow with any sign that you'd been you know, indulging in Western decadence. And so one of the little telltale symbols, you know, that the the counterintelligence people would look for would be, well, if you saw a guy, you know, festoon with with all of these, you know, expensive items of jewellery, but no rings, that would be something that they would they would take into account. So all of those little details, just love, you know, puts you into really... puts you into someone else's shoes you can imagine a little bit what it would be like living and doing one of those really high high pressure jobs yeah oh my god i love the details and now uh all right number two on that same trip that you're taking are you or tasha in charge of the musical entertainment and what is the genre or band of choice very good question and i think I think it wouldn't really be the kind of thing that broke into either one of us being in charge of it because we do have pretty similar taste in music. Um, I think perhaps if one band was going to be the the primary one, probably the one that we most have in common would probably be Pearl Jam. Ah, nice. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, Tasha's one of... Tash is one of the longest standing members of the Pearl Jam fan club. You know, they set the 10 club, I think they call it. Been going since, what, the 90s or something. So, um, yeah, we, we would, uh, I think that's where we would find ourselves. Well, nicely played. And we will play that at dinner on this next question. One of my faves. You and Tasha are invited to join Tammy and myself for dinner at our home here in San Diego for a little change up from out there in the wilderness. All we ask is that you bring two more people to make it six, which we think is kind of like the perfect number for an intimate dinner party. All the food, wine, beverages, all taken care of. Just bring two people. Now, you can two ch- choose two people, living or dead, somebody you maybe always wanted to sit down and talk to. Who would they be and why? Well, that is a f- well, first of all, thanks very much for the invitation. I think we're going to take that as a real one, and we'll probably show up on your doorstep at some point very soon. Um, but as, as for the guests, I mean, it's so difficult, isn't it? I think that um, one thing I've been thinking, I mean, we, you know, we, we've talked a lot today about books and about words and about how they work. And so, you know, I, I cannot get, I cannot ever get, if, if ever I start thinking about this, I cannot get away from um, someone who was born very close to where I was born in the UK, um, William Shakespeare. I, I would love nothing more than to be able to just see if he could even explain how he did what he did, or maybe he was just one of those intuitive people where it just came naturally, because the way that he you talked about the economy of language in, in the reach of books, the way that some he can express or could express so much with so few words just 
blows my mind. You know, the opening of Richard III, you know, now is this summer of, of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York. The plays on words, you know, son as in male child, son as in, you know, just unbelievable how much he could convey in so few words. So I would absolutely um, want to want to find out more about him. Um, and then as uh, somebody else, goodness me, it would be very difficult to pick. I think, yeah, I think maybe what I'd do is, is I'd switch to music, I think. I would go with Shakespeare for, for, for literature and I would go for music. And I think I would, maybe would pick David Gilmore from Pink Floyd because, again, if you think about expressing you know, it's a different way of expressing, particularly emotion. I think, and some of the um, some of the some of the guitar melodies that he came up with, and some that he could play on some of those classic, you know, Dark Side of the Moon, The Wall, those those kind of albums. Just to see if I could get any closer to understanding how you take an emotion and you express it through sound. I would I would love to know more about that. It's funny you should mention Dark Side of the Moon. I picked that up recently and played it again and uh, was harkened back to high school. And I thought the orchestration, the, the phraseology, the, the, the craftsmanship of the, of the tools that they're ready. Oh, just and isn't that the personification of really classical classic music rather not classical but classic is that it stands the test of time and you can listen to it over and over and over and over again and you never tire of it absolutely and then one one thing though on that i remember is that you talk about listening to it when you were when you were in high school or whatever and there was one song on dark side of the moon that i really really liked it seemed very profound but there was a line in it that said something like and then one day i found 10 years had got behind me and that was you know i was like 15 16 and you know 10 years is such a massive part of your life i was thinking well you know the rest of the song works fine but you know this idea that 10 years you know too, no too much and then you know you look you come back to it at our age now and you think only 10 <laughs> you know but it'll be 20 years 30 years you know you reconnect yeah. with old friends sometimes and you realize you hadn't seen them for 20 years and yeah you know that that you know looking back on it that's just an extra perspective that I hadn't picked up on at the time, you know, is how your view of time changes and how units of time that sometimes at one point in your life just seem, you know, infeasibly large. All of a sudden now they seem like a blink of an eye. Yeah, no kidding. Well, we have run out of time, folks. Uh, once again, the book is No Plan B. We are giving away two copies. Just send us uh, your, you know, thethrillerzone at gmail.com. Tell us why you want the book and where you're calling in or listening from, and we'll do that. But if you'd like to learn more about my friend Andrew here, andrewgrantbooks.com. Of course, you can also hit up jackreacher.com. I have a pretty good feeling, Andrew, that Jack Reacher is going to be around for a very long time wouldn't you say well thank you david i absolutely hope that he will but you know that is ultimately down to everybody listening and watching today so uh, you know as long as people want to read about him i will be delighted to continue writing about him and i could not finish without saying once again thank you so much for giving us not only an hour, but an hour and a half to help celebrate our 100th episode of The Thriller Zone. This has been 
just a dream come true. Well, it has been for me too. It's been an honor and a privilege. And more than that, it's been a pleasure. So thank you. And uh, I hope that we can, I hope we can do this again soon. All it takes is another book. (laughs) (laughs) That was just such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, You know, it's amazing to be on the hundredth show, but if you'd have me back on any other number of show, I would, I would be delighted. Count on it, brother. Count on it. (laughs) fantastic well thank you so much my love to uh, tasha speaking of tasha next time we'll have to have her crash the party and we'll we'll talk about her books let's do that that would be fantastic she would like that i would love it yeah awesome all right all right and we must have that dinner sometime i like that idea we would love it we we've thrown this out to several people and so far a couple have joined us and dude we live in uh, you live in paradise we live in a different flavor of paradise we're literally one mile to the beach we walk along the beach every day so it's fantastic pretty heavenly love it excellent brother well you take take good care and we will talk soon thank you cheers Episode 100. Did I tell you? Was it great? What a gentleman. What a scholar. What a talent. Andrew Child, again, the book is No Plan B. On book stands and available just a couple of days from now. 1025 it drops. Are you a Jack Reacher fan? Well, then you're going to read it. You're going to read it. No Plan B. There you go. He along with his brother, Lee Child. You've probably heard of him. So thank you once again to Andrew. Thank you for being here on episode 100. Who's on next Thursday show? Oh, she was on the show before. Wanda Morris, Anywhere You Run. What, have you met Wanda Morris before? She's one of the sweetest, most talented, down-to-earth gals I have ever met. And she's from my neck of the woods, Atlanta, Georgia, near Carolina. She is on next week's show. And I'm telling you something. It is going to be remarkable to sit down with Wanda Morris. Her career has taken off. So join us for that. Now, 100 is a big milestone. I want to make it 200. I want 500. I want 1,000. If you know anything about me, I work really hard at getting what I want, and I'm loving this show. I hope it shows. I work hard to bring you the best thriller writers in the world across the board. So thank you for being there for 100 Hang in there with me for, yes, the next 100. I'm your host, David Temple. I'll see you next time for yet another edition of The Thriller Zone. Hey, are you still listening? Yeah, the show's over, dude. If you want to hang around for a little bit of overtime, stick around right here in the studio. These are some of the outtakes from my conversation with Andrew Child. Wait a minute. You're going to be... Uh, on a live feed on Warwick's on uh, the 1st of November, Tuesday the 1st, with Louise right. Penny. Yes, that's right, yeah. Yeah, Lily as well, yeah. They're one of my sponsors, Warwick's. So I was going to come down there and do the sh- do a show like live from there and that kind of a thing. Then I realized, oh, that's virtual. I won't really. Yeah, I wish we could do live, but, the, you know, the, I'm doing one live this year on my own. Lee couldn't make it um, and everything else is, is um, online. What do you think? What's your theory about live? And I'll, and I'll shut up here in a minute. Do, do you see uh, what does it do for you, do, both traffic and mental? Well, it's, it, it depends whether you mean like, like a live uh, broadcast or a in-person 
at a store because um you know it's the old sort of thesp in me i love the live in person in the store because you get the feedback instantly you know you, you you tell you know you've everybody has a sort of certain amount of material that they generally you know run through but you can you can adjust on the fly you can tell oh people are responding to jokes tonight so you you throw in more or oh that one didn't land at all better be more serious you know so you can you can really um, adapt as you go much more easily if you're in a room with people and um, you, you, you can sort of sense their energy a bit more you can sense how you know how it's going and feed off that a little bit I find that if, you know doing it um, but I mean the downside of that is that you know only a certain number of people can come because they have to be able to get to the bookstore they have to be able to they be free that night all of that stuff um whereas the stuff that well it doesn't <clears throat> affect me I, I don't find that much of a difference between whether it's recorded or whether it's it's kind of being broadcast live um but it, it what it means is it's easier something like this because it's the two of us and we can interact a bit more but some of them you just there's nothing on the screen or there's just you you can't tell who's watching you can't tell if they're enjoying it you can't right. feel it. <clears throat> but on the other hand, it means people sometimes from all over the world can, can get involved, you know? I've been toying with the idea because I'm only 90 minutes from Los Angeles and I was talking to Chris Hardy about this the other day. I'm toying with the idea, however, I've got to get, I got to get more traffic, is setting up a, a renting a studio in Los Angeles where it's very uh, accessible for a lot of people. And, mm -hmm. and dialing into authors in that area to come down to the studio and do it live because there's nothing like uh, my eyeball to your eyeball and, you know, mm -hmm. breathing the same space. But Absolutely. Now, that would be brilliant. If, if you could pull it off, it would be the best combination of, um, of, of every way of doing it. I spend, on average five days of preparation for every one hour on the show because I will cut this thing down to video and I will cut it down to audio. Then I will cut promos. And then, I mean, and then I've got to read the book. Fortunately, I did this one in two days. Most books, you know, three to four. So by the time you do that and make your notes, it is a lot of work, but I love it. But it me. shows, it shows because, you know, the only way to make something really good is to, is to put in the effort and put in the preparation and, you know, it, 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 it absolutely shows with what you do. So Thank I'm you. sorry that you have to do so much work, but it's really good that you do because it really does pay off. That's remaining. Yeah. And it, oh, by the way, while I'm writing books, by the way. Hmm. Well, yeah, but you know, that's all I, I remember exactly the same. You know, there's, there's no logic about it. There's nothing that you can do to guarantee it. Um, I used to just, I, I had a sign above my computer. It just said blind faith, you know, just, just, keep believing that if you show up and you do the work and you do it as well as you can one day somehow it will fall into place that's all you can do it's funny that was my second clip that i had set aside and i thought we'd already hit it enough but that was because my second favorite thing you said was that sign that you put over mm -hmm. your computer um you know what in fact i'm gonna take 65 seconds right now and play that clip since we're here in overtime for those who would like to hear that second piece of advice from an earlier show that I really enjoyed. Here we go. What I've found over the years talking to people is that a lot of people find the sort of second and third 
books and so on much more difficult because at that point they're kind of burdened down with this expectation that they are now an author so they've got to they've, they've discovered that there are rules about oh you can't have backstory in the first chapter or you can't have this or you can't have that or you can't start a chapter with dialogue all of these things that you don't know about when you're first starting especially it's easier for us because we started before there was so much online stuff so you, you just kind of pulled out a piece of paper or a laptop and you got going you didn't google to find out how you did it and discover there were like eight million rules and by the time you try to find a path that avoids all of these do not do this do not do that you know you're left with about three words you can use and you know it's a disaster so just ignore all of that stuff write the story you want to write and have faith because that's generally the only thing that keeps us going you know you know summon up the belief from somewhere keep reading and keep writing andrew that's really that is so profoundly true is that you just if that's what if that's the desire of your heart and that's what makes you tick then you just got to have the faith that it'll happen i mean that's the way i live so we're on the I'm same page there. we're on the same page for sure hi this is andrew child and i'm hanging out with my good friend david temple on the 100th episode of the thriller zone Dave Temple here with The Thriller Zone. Do you remember when you were a young kid in school and when you did something out of the ordinary, you got a gold star for it? Pretty nice, right? Then maybe later, you know, you got a plaque for achieving something significant. Still kind of cool. But later in life, when you did something really significant, you won a trophy and you were a big deal, right? Well, achieving some sort of recognition for some of us never actually leaves which is why five-star reviews for our podcast, The Thriller Zone, makes us feel like a shining example of what a good student or accomplished athlete is like. And when I say we and us, I mean me. <laughs> so next time you're listening to an episode of The TZ and you're really digging what you hear, why not consider taking two minutes and leaving a review? It would mean a lot. And it doesn't matter if it's on Apple Podcast, which is kind of the premier choice, wherever you're listening or your our own website even thethrillerzone.com just the fact that you cared enough to support our efforts with the simple click of a button shows you liked it and then taking the other one minute and 54 seconds to write two sentences expressing your enjoyment well it'll make this young podcaster feel like he's wearing those five stars on his lapel and it looks dang good the Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.